Today on Blue 58, Aaron Rodgers isn't holding back his feelings on the new collective bargaining agreement proposal, which makes me think of Brett Favre. I will explain why. Then, if you want to go beyond the combine numbers, what do you look for? We'll get you started. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Interesting stuff going on with this ongoing collective bargaining agreement negotiation in the midst of one of the NFL's more interesting events, the NFL Combine. So we'll talk a little bit about one before we talk about the other. We've got to talk about the CBA at all in this episode because since the last time we talked, Aaron Rodgers has actually spoken somewhat publicly about the collective bargaining agreement proposal. He is a player rep for the Packers and he weighed in on Twitter with some thoughts about it. And I'll read some of those thoughts now. Quoting from his statement typed in the what looks to be the iPhone Notes app and released to Twitter that way. I voted no last night, he says. My decision to vote no was based off the conversations I've had with the men in my locker room that I've at that I'm tasked to represent. This deal will affect every player that plays the game and we have made this decision with only an abbreviated version of the deal and that isn't good enough. Although I do see that there are many things in the proposal that improve the lives and care for past, present, and future NFL players, there are issues with others. 16 games to me was never something to be negotiated. The owners made it clear that the 17th game is about paying for the added benefits, and that had nothing to do with positive feedback received about any extra risks involved with the regular season game, added regular season game. Also an extra game for every two-seed moving forward on wildcard weekend, i.e. Green Bay Packers 2019, no buy. There were also many issues raised about the workplace, the workload, and the off-season program. Some have been addressed while others have not. With an extra game added to the schedule, added risk in longer stretches before and after the bye week, we felt it was important to address adding more off-season recovery time. The ideas discussed would not add any costs for teams. In fact, if anything, would lessen some of them. And he continues on for some time. I will not read the entire thing, but the point is he's standing up for what he believes is right for his players, the players he represents, the players he is going into the locker room and and lining up alongside every Sunday. And I think it's important to note the players who are speaking up who have very little to lose in this. Aaron Rodgers is under contract for the foreseeable future. Four or five more years, a long time yet in NFL years. Functionally, it may be less than that, but he's gotten his money. He's on his third or fourth now big contract with the Packers. He's gotten all of the money he is likely ever to need. And yet he is trying to make things better for players who are playing now, just starting their careers now, who haven't started their careers yet, He's putting himself on the line, his reputation on the line with ownership and and everyone else to try to make things better. I think about that because Aaron Rodgers is, if nothing else, a calculating guy. That sounds a little bit like a negative, but I think I'd mean it in the sense that he thinks very carefully about how the things he says will be perceived, to the point that he records all of the interviews he conducts himself to make sure that he is not misquoted. He's very careful about the things that he says publicly. 
And for him to put a statement out like this, rather than just letting it trickle out through the media that he voted no on the CBA, I think is interesting. He is talking publicly, in a way, about other people's money. Because again, most of what goes on in the CBA is not going to affect him. He might have to play an extra game. He may end up playing overseas for the first time. He's going to do a little bit less in the preseason, but the offseason is going to be a little bit different than it was in the past two. If the Packers go in as anything other than a two seed, they they don't get even a chance, or as a one seed, excuse me, they don't get a chance at a bye. All of that stuff is true, but by and large, this CBA isn't going to affect Aaron Rodgers all that much. This makes me think of Brett Favre because of what he said about Javon Walker in 2005. Walker had a great year the year prior, and um, he decided he would hold out prior to training camp in 2005. And Brett Favre had some thoughts about that. I would have never thought it would be a guy like Javon, he told Jason Wildey, writing for Chippewa.com at that point. I guess in the business, nothing should surprise you, especially what happens when guys have a little bit of success. Some guys handle it the right way, and some guys don't. Javon has tremendous potential. We got to see some of that last year. The sky's the limit for that guy, and I'd be the first to defend him, but he's going about it the wrong way. What happened to honoring your contract and saying, let's work as a team and see if we can get this done? Why not go about it that way? Maybe I'm old school, but I always thought you honor a contract. Sure, sometimes guys pass pass you up in salary, and maybe it's a lesser player, but it's all based on what a team has as far as value in that person. What happened to buying into the team concept, Favre said. He wasn't complaining two years ago, and until you go to the Pro Bowl, you don't even think twice about what they're paying you. It goes on and on. You can read more about the situation. Uh, The link to that article is in the show notes. And obviously this isn't a one-to-one comparison, but it's interesting to see these two guys, Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre, neither of whom were super eager to speak out about their teammates, choosing these moments to speak out. Favre decided he would go all in on a teammate, which seems crazy in 2020. It's I, I don't know if you'd see something even remotely close to that anymore. And if a quarterback said that about a wide receiver on their team, he'd be pilloried. You wouldn't think about that quarterback the same way again. But it's barely a footnote in what we think about when we think about Brett Favre. Yet here we have, 15 years later, Aaron Rodgers going to bat for not just his teammates, but other guys around the league who haven't gotten paid yet. Brett Favre had his money in 2005. He set himself up in opposition to a guy trying to get something for himself. And I'm not saying Javon Walker went about things the right way either, but it's odd that Favre criticized him publicly. Here, and again, it's not entirely the same situation, not really the same situation at all, but Rogers, equally reserved, comes out and says what he says. Puts himself on the line a little bit. Interesting comparison. So what should we think about this CBA situation in general, too? We got a good listener question about it today. Uh, Brad asked me on Twitter, the NFL has more competitive balance than the NBA because it doesn't allow super teams in the MLB because it has a hard cap and non-guaranteed contracts. Is the new CBA pushing the NFL to be more like those other leagues? I think that's a fair question, but I don't think so for a couple of reasons. First, I don't think there's a lot of danger of super teams in the NFL, not because they're not allowed, but because I think it's just that much harder 
to get them together. So I don't think that will be an issue. I don't think this is in danger of allowing the NFL to become like the NBA in that respect. It's just hard enough to get enough guys together of the caliber that you need to be a super team. And it matters less anyway, even if you could, because of the amount of moving parts on a football team. I mean, say you got Patrick Mahomes and the two or three best wide receivers in the NFL together, along with a defense that's one of the best in the league. If Patrick Mahomes goes out and trips over his shoelace going down the stairs and breaks his collarbone and tears his ACL before training camp starts, it doesn't matter at all. None of the other stuff that you've put together is going to matter because you're not playing with Patrick Mahomes anymore. In the NBA, if you get one superstar, you are a contender by default. If LeBron James showed up on whoever the sorriest team in the league is this year, tomorrow they would still be a contender if you moved them into the playoffs if their if their record didn't matter anymore. If you get two superstars or even two like top 10 players on your team, you might be the de facto favorite in the entire league. How many guys like that would you need, though, in the NFL? Six? Ten? Total? It would, it would take a lot to really move the needle that direction. So I'm not worried about that in the NFL. I also don't think there's a lot of danger in the NFL becoming like Major League Baseball because you'd never get the spending disparity that you do between two teams at the top and bottom uh, in Major League Baseball. And I think that's going to be the case no matter how much revenue the players get because of the cap still being in place. According to SpotTrack, uh, the Yankees currently have $220 million committed to their 25-man roster. The Orioles are last in Major League Baseball at $45 million, a disparity of $175 million. In 2019, the difference between the top and bottom in the NFL was just $111 million. The Vikings had $177 million in active contracts. The Dolphins had $66 million. But even that isn't quite accurate because it doesn't take into effect dead cap, which still affects your spending. If you include that uh, factor in there, it's something more like $50 to $60 million between the top team in the NFL and the bottom. In addition, that, spreading is, or that spending is spread over more than twice as many players on an NFL team as on a Major League Baseball team. So I don't think there there's really danger of spending like crazy just because players are getting more of the revenue. Ultimately, I think this CBA thing is basically only just redistributing a very small amount of money. Very small. The latest numbers I've seen have had the players going from 47% of the revenues the league generates to 48 and a half. Honestly, a very small jump. And they only are going to get to 48.5 if they accept that 17th game. So if you compare that to a previous NFL year with just 16 games, they're doing 6.25% more work for 1.5% more pay. The other shifts that would happen as a result of this collective bargaining agreement are tied to other things like like adding responsibilities, like adding stuff in the playoffs, adding a new team. Whatever remaking of the NFL is going on is really just about money. And that's all it's ever going to be about. Follow the money and you'll see why these things are happening. And I think if you take a second and look at how little the NFL players are gaining in this situation, you'll start to see why they're against it. 
I don't have much of a rooting interest in this one way or another other than wanting to make sure it gets resolved with something people seem to be reasonably happy about. I am conflict-averse kind of to a fault. So really, <laughs> that's what I just want to see, the conflict end with everybody being relatively happy. But it is frustrating to see the guys that are actually putting themselves on the line seemingly have to give up more and more all the time. Especially if you look back at what the players were getting prior to the 2011 CBA, they got really taken to the woodshed in that negotiation, it seems like. But the amount that they could stand to give up to actually gain anything either is, it's a big ask. So you can see why things change very slowly and they almost always seem to change in the favor of the owners. Ultimately, though, remember to just follow the money. That's why things are happening. And that's ultimately going to be what decides it. How much is it worth to you to fight against that last 17th game? How much is it worth to the NFL owners to fight for that last game? Potentially billions of dollars, I guess. But um, that's for somebody else to sort out, not me. Combine continues on. And tonight, as this taping happens, we're just seeing the end of the results of the um, wide receivers running their 40-yard dashes and doing all of their testing and stuff. That's a lot of fun to watch. Watching Justin Jefferson run a 4-4-3 brings back fond memories of times when I used to run a 4-4-3. like back on Madden 2008, 2009, whatever that was, when they started introducing the uh, the player story feature. I mean, I could run a 40-yard dash in four seconds flat. It was pretty incredible, just lightning fast, so I feel like I can really relate to some of these players. Combine performance is just part of that three-pronged process we talked about in the last episode, and we're getting some really good combine performances, but that's not the whole thing. You want to be able to put a little context to what these guys are doing. What does it matter that a guy who didn't do anything at all in college can run a 42940? And what does it mean that he could do at the NFL level if he was productive in college but maybe didn't run quite the 40-yard dash time you were expecting? Are there some numbers that we can put next to these guys that put a little bit more context into what they did? We look at their combine performance. We look at their production in college, and then we ask our film experts, what do you think about these guys? There's our three-pronged process. So we're getting the combine performance this week. We've got the film guys doing their mock drafts all the time. What numbers tell us actual worthwhile information about these players? Put simply, what stats do you trust? The Ringer's Kevin Clark did a big piece last April about how NFL teams are trying to kind of crack the analytics game as it pertains to the NFL draft. And the net result of that piece was that most teams are not really happy with the results that they've gained from that process so far. I've linked the full article in your show notes. You should take a look at it, uh, kind of to dive into what these teams are actually doing, because there's a lot of different approaches. But again, the takeaway is that nobody really knows if it's working or not so far. Here's how that piece opens. Since last fall, I've been I've reviewed materials from the analytics databases of a handful of NFL teams relating to last year's draft, so the 2018 draft. 
The one commonality between all of them is they made me feel stupid for regarding both football and math. The difference between them is everything else. It is not a surprise that teams view players differently. Traditional draft boards have wide variances, even without the use of complex formulas. Each organization believed its in-house analysts had identified specific targets to build its draft strategies around. But what struck me is how very few of the team's targets overlapped with each other. One was obsessed with body composition, and another used data to collected from the traditional scouting process, though it had found a formula to determine what constitutes a red flag. There is nothing more interesting in this week's draft than the race to make the NFL's most inexact science an exact one. Here is what we know in 2019. There is more and better information about this year's prospects than any in history, and that trend will continue for the foreseeable future. Whether teams are efficient in how they use that information is different is a different matter altogether. So a couple of takeaways from that. First, analytics are very much part of this process. And second, not all analytics are created equally. And third, everyone's using those analytics differently anyway. So what stats are out there that we can access that actually do matter, if any? I think there are a few, and there's more and better research going on all the time, adding more stuff to our toolkit. But I think there is some stuff that we can point to that says, all right, these are some stats that at least point us in the right direction, that narrow the field a little bit. And it's more than just the traditional box score stuff. So I've got stats on quarterbacks, running backs, pass catchers, defensive linemen, and edge rushers. That leaves us with some blind spots out there. We've got blind spots on the offensive line, and blind spots among linebackers and defensive backs. Offensive line, good luck to you. I don't know of any stat anywhere that really does a great job of painting uh, the performance, painting the picture of the performance of an offensive line prospect. Lots of P's in there. So if you've got one out there, let me know. Because I sure don't know of any. The same kind of goes for linebackers and defensive backs, though, for different reasons. I think everybody kind of intuitively understands that offensive line is a difficult position to evaluate. Linebacker and defensive back kind of is, too. Because unless you're looking at the raw testing numbers, there's not a lot to really go on. I can tell you what not to trust, though. Volume numbers. And for linebackers and defensive backs, that's going to be volume tackle numbers and volume pass defense numbers. It almost couldn't matter less if a linebacker prospect piled up tackle after tackle after tackle playing against college-level competition. It just doesn't matter. It's a lot like running backs who just run all over the field. They're so athletic that they don't have to really follow their blockers and can't perform at an NFL level when everybody is the same level of athlete that they are. That's kind of what it feels to watch linebackers pile up big numbers. Same kind of goes for defensive backs who just make plays all over the field because, again, they're more athletic than everybody else. Or they can get away with not being quite as good an athlete but still playing the ball really well. Think about a guy like Josh Jackson. He looked really great at Iowa when he didn't have to play against elite athletes all the time, but now that he's in the NFL, he gets exposed pretty regularly. Among positions where we actually can use some of these numbers. Quarterback 
may be the most important. And it actually, in a weird way, is kind of the easiest too. There's a really simple number that gives you a good idea who is performing well. It's called completion percentage over expected, CPOE. 538, Nate Silver's politics, stats, sports, whatever website, did a big piece on this last year, and I've linked it again in your show notes below. In short, CPOE adjusts completion percentage, which in itself is a pretty good metric for projecting success of NFL or NFL prospect quarterbacks. It adjusts completion percentage for game situation, competition level, depth of target, and a bunch of other factors. And it boils a whole bunch of things down to a single number. The bad news on this is there's very little publicly available information about how these numbers are compiled. But CPOE is pretty well covered by 538 and a few other locations. Football Outsiders, one of my favorite NFL analytics sites, is also um, constantly updating their own quarterback projection stats. But generally speaking, um, this seems to be a pretty good one. It predicted that based on their college performance, guys like Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Sam Darnold, Jared Goff, even would be successful NFL passers. It also, just as a caveat, predicted that Johnny Manziel, Jameis Winston, and Kellen Moore would be tremendous NFL passers as well. And at least based on yards per attempt, all three of those guys did pretty well. Not quite up to their projections, but they were at least identified as guys that were worth paying attention to. And judging by where they were drafted, hey, you can't fault NFL teams entirely. But this is a good starting point for narrowing the field of quarterbacks we think are going to be worthwhile. Running back is another one where it can be tempting to look at college production and just say, hey, this guy was super productive in the NCAA, maybe he'll do the same on Sundays. According to the people who crunch the numbers, there is actually some truth to that. Stats like touchdowns per game and rushing touchdowns per game are actually fairly good indicators of who's going to be productive at the NFL level. But there's another stat that could actually be a little bit easier to digest. It's called speed score. It's one that we've used fairly regularly in our in our stats, in our evaluation of prospects in the past. In fact, dating back to our big draft preview, I think it would have been in 2017, uh, we've used speed score as one of our key tracking metrics for uh, prospects the Packers might be interested in. Basically, speed score is just a different measure for athleticism. It boils down your 40-yard dash, and weights it for, well, your weight. It says, more than pure speed, your 40-yard dash should be about moving mass. So if you're a big, strong guy, you should get a bonus if you run a 4-4-40, as opposed to a guy who's 25 pounds lighter and runs at the same time. Any score over 100 in speed score is considered a good one. And here's a good contrast for Packers fans. Aaron Jones, considered a pretty fast running back, at a speed score of just 96. Pretty small, willowy guy. Eddie Lacy, not known to be a blazer, 
had a speed score of 107. He moved his quote-unquote 238 pounds more efficiently than Aaron Jones moved his 195 or whatever he weighs, whatever he weighed at the combine. There is some pretty good indication if you can move your mass pretty effectively, pretty quickly, that you are going to be at least capable of existing on an NFL roster. Which, if you're looking for running backs in 2020, that may be about as good as you can hope for. For wide receivers and other pass catchers, things get a little bit more complicated. SB Nation put together a really good piece. And I've gone ahead and just linked this one for you to dive into on your own time. Um, But they did a really good piece about how a variety of wide receiver stats can kind of come together into a number they call marginal efficiency. Basically, how efficient you are in doing your job as a wide receiver versus other receivers who have comparable stats. Basically, it wants to look at efficiency of uh, how consistently and efficiently you are moving the ball down the field for your team. So think of things like yards per target, catch rate, how often you're catching balls that are thrown to you, and then traditional things like athleticism. It is a pretty strong indicator of NFL success. At least it appears to be so far based on 2018 rookie pass catchers. It's a pretty new metric, but it seems to indicate fairly well who's going to be effective in the NFL. Finally, for edge rushers and defensive linemen, one of my favorites is production ratio. This is something that we've harped on for a couple years now, and we're going to circle back to a piece I wrote after the NFL draft last year talking about Rashawn Gary to kind of highlight how this one works. So production ratio measures sacks and tackles for loss per game. You want to average about one of those for every game that you play in college or the NFL. Generally speaking, a player with a production ratio in college of one or better is considered at least an adequate NFL pass rush prospect. One and a half is very good. Two or better is absolutely elite. In last year's first round, there were two players taken who had production ratios of two or better, Ed Oliver and Montez Sweat. Rashawn Gary had a production ratio of just .96. Also on the board when Gary was taken was Brian Burns, who went to the Carolina Panther. His Panthers, his production ratio was 1.86. I like this metric because although it's not perfect, sacks are not everything, tackles for loss are not everything, it does let you compare guys one to another with one simple number. And if you are a dominant college athlete who's trying to get after the quarterback, chances are you're going to get to at least one fairly easily. This works even pretty well for more traditional hand-on-the-ground pass rushers, so guys who aren't standing up on the edge, like Montez Sweat or Brian Burns or now in the NFL, Rashawn Gary. Nick Bosa's college production ratio was 1.6. Quinn and Williams, now of the New York Jets, was at 1.5. And Jeffrey Simmons, 
at a production ratio of just 1.05, still over 1, which is pretty good for a defensive tackle type. These numbers, all of them, hopefully will help us narrow the field a little bit among the prospects we're looking at. And over the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at each position group in the NFL draft, trying to narrow down who may be of interest for the Packers. We've got two parts of our three-part evaluation process now established. And I think now is the time to really start digging into who the Packers might be interested in. This is not going to be mock draft specific, though we will talk about that a little bit. This is going to be guys that I think are going to fit with the Packers. So that'll be something that's starting within the next couple of weeks. We'll be diving into that sort of stuff now that the combine is underway and we've got some good baseline numbers to really look at some people. I'm excited for it, and it's really time to start looking ahead to the draft because August, it is still two months away. But hey, we're getting close. So I've got for you on this episode. I do appreciate you listening in. If you thought this episode was of value to you or to somebody else you know who is interested in learning more about football and the Green Bay Packers, do us a favor and share that with them. It'll help us grow the tent and help us further our mission of helping everybody become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.